Hey everybody, it's Fun Games with Serious People, the uh, series where we play incredibly fun games and try to say something serious about them. I am Colleen Macklin, I'm your host. We're here at Parsons School of Design in New York City, and uh, I am thrilled to have with me two incredible guests. We have Bonnie Ruberg, who's come all the way from UC Irvine, where you teach. One of the most exciting things about Bo is that Bo has been writing about, has been organizing around queerness and games. Your most recent book is called The Queer Games Avant-Garde. It's a set of how many interviews? Gosh, I think I ended up with about 25 once it was all said and done. Oh my gosh, 25 interviews with some of the most incredible game makers today who make queer games uh, identify as queer too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, queer and trans, yeah. Wonderful. Um, and some of my favorite game designers are there. Uh, I read it. I love it. You'll see my little quote on the back cover <laughs> of the book. It comes endorsed by Colleen Macklin. So that is all the, the proof you should need. <laughs> it's a big inspiration. And even if you're not a game designer, there's so much in there to uh, think about and kind of it opens the doors to a whole new way of making games, I feel like. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I am really thrilled about it. In part, I get to be proud of it because it's not me. Like it's, I did the interviews, I kind of put the whole thing together, but the insights that are in there about design and queerness and the politics of making this kind of work, like they come from this amazing network of queer and trans game designers. So yeah, I agree. It's great because they're, they're all amazing. And uh, you've also written I, I don't know how you do it. Uh, only a few years before, or maybe one year before, uh, was published. Video games have always been queer. And that is a kind of basically an outline of your entire philosophy behind how games can be queer in different ways. Yeah. So, yeah, that book just came out um, basically a year before the current one. Um, and it, there's a reason for why they have come out so close together. It's because the first one is much more kind of academic theory, like here's how I think about queerness and games. But it felt, I don't know, it didn't feel quite right to just say, here's me as a um, professor thinking about games. I wanted to also have a platform that centers the voices of amazing queer and trans people who make these games. Um, so they're kind of like sister projects in that way. They're two different sides, the academic and the design. Very cool. So read them both. Go out and get them right away. <laughs> they both look really cool. I love the covers of both of them. So they'll look beautiful on your shelves. Well, they're incredibly stylish, which leads me also to the fact that you are an organizer for the uh, for QGCon, uh, Queerness and Games Conference, which uh, is an absolutely incredible academic conference focused on queerness and games. Yes. So um, QGCon has been going on, gosh, since 2013 was our first event. Um, and I was the lead organizer for a long time, but now I'm just a, just a simple co-organizer. Um, Jess Marcotte, who's at uh, Concordia, finishing up their PhD, amazing queer game designer, is in charge. Um, but uh, yeah, QGCon is this really, really lovely, warm queer space. Uh, it's one weekend a year, roughly. And we bring together, it's about 300 people each year. Um, we take over an academic building for the weekend and we just talk about queer games and we share queer games that we make. And um, I don't know, for me, it's been a hugely important part of my work, but also just my life. It's it's an amazing community. Well, and I guess the reason I was hinting at uh, uh, the fact that 
the book co- the covers of your books are beautiful and this conference is beautiful is because I really feel like uh, it is probably you know I go to almost I've been to almost all of the game conferences maybe there's a few I haven't but the big industry conferences the more indie conferences um, and I've been to QGCon several times and it perhaps the fashion uh, is I would say it's the most fashionable game conference uh, of them all thank you I mean, I think it's a certain definition of fashion. You know, it's like the one conference um, where you both have like official academic-y things. And also like, I would say standard attire is like um, those leggings that are like constellations and pictures of the galaxy. With cats. Cats, yeah. We have every um, every year that I was in charge, I bought all the co-organizers some sort of fun present. We all have matching Pikachu hats with like Pikachu ears that stick out. Um, I have a tail that I wear every year at Kijikan. It's very, we're very serious about things. It's really, it really is. It's, it's incredible. And it's where I, I actually feel super welcomed. And I think everyone really is super friendly and very open. And uh, for, for academic conferences where you feel like there's a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, hierarchy, they're definitely, that hierarchy doesn't exist uh, at QGCon. That's really good to hear because that's been one of our goals all along. Like the event wasn't just started by academics. It's always been at least 50-50 academic um, and designers, devs, artists. And like that's hard actually because academics have this very like highfalutin kind of way of thinking about the world. Academia is so hierarchical. Um, we've, we worked really hard to make it not feel that way. And sometimes we get it wrong. So I'm really glad that it feels good and it feels welcoming. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe it's because folks are wearing leggings and they just feel like they're uh, in a better mood, <laughs> which I can relate to. It should be noted um, for the history of QGCon that that first uh, event in 2013 featured a keynote by none other than Colleen Macklin. Oh, I wasn't going to mention that. but <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> You are a key part of the history and the origin of this event. Yeah, well, uh, it's it's very close to my heart, the whole event and uh, all the people who participate. It's incredible. Um, we have here Lane Nooney, who teaches at NYU. Uh, is your background's in cultural studies? Theoretically, yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> Don't ask me what that means. I have two degrees in it. Still couldn't explain it. We, oh, and, and Bo is comparative lit, yes. so that's high. Okay, it's good perfect. to see we're working in yeah. our field. It, yeah. yeah, you're uh, working on a variety of different things. You're really, I think, if I were to describe your work, it's game history. You're a game historian, right? Yeah, I'm a computer and video game historian. Yeah. So I uh, specialize in the era of American. Um, video gaming and computing. With computing, it's kind of late 70s uh, all the way to the early 2000s. And with Whoa. the video game stuff, I'm, I mean, there's not, you know, it's a short history, so I've got a lot of that covered. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you're founding editor also of ROMCHIP, which is a new game histories uh, journal, right? Yeah, so one of the problems if you are an academic who wants to write historically about games is that there's nowhere to publish your work, actually. There's no, like, dead... I mean, there are places you can take it, but mm. you're always kind of refashioning yourself for some other venue or some other field. Right. And this allows people who want to have a concentrated conversation specifically about what it means to move game history forward as a field, uh, to have that conversation together. I mean, it makes total sense. I mean, you've got film historians, you've got yeah. historians of all kinds of niche areas, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, every other medium has a historical 
um, academic, like scholarly back end to it, whether mm -hmm. it's cinema, television, radio, uh, even mid-century computing. There's a whole body of historians who work on those subjects. But wow. We've really Not done games. a really crap job Whoa. explaining, uh, I would say, the history of consumer computing and video gaming is obviously a real like charismatic part of that. Wow, it's incredible to me. Um, maybe because we've had games since before writing. I mean, games have been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But um, this is really exciting, and I'm so thrilled to have both of you here today because we are going to play a game that broke the internet. Maybe? I think it did break yeah, the internet. Just a little. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is Untitled Goose Game. Um, we'll see if by the time it comes out, you remember this game. <laughs> Anyone cares about this game? <laughs> they, 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 a lot come out at different times, but this has definitely rippled through the memosphere. Mm -hmm. um, there's goose memes everywhere. I would right say now. it was. A, it has been a historic event. Yeah. in the uh, post-digital distribution Indiepocalypse 2.0 era. So it's Untitled Goose Game. House House are the developers. Uh, they're based in Melbourne. Amazing games coming out of Melbourne, Australia. Um, yeah. You've got Doug Wilson down there, and you've got uh, Frog Detective, um, Grace Bruxner, and some other folks I think are doing work out of, out of Melbourne, Australia. Uh, I'm going to start this up, and I am going to ask a question. In terms of game history, where does this sit? Yeah, I mean, so I, you know, right now I teach a class on the political economy of games. Oh, okay. And that's, that's wow. a very fancy word or term. What's that mean, then? For talking about um, kind of games as economic objects, okay. right? Mm -hmm. uh, but, not, but with a more... And the, in, the industry yeah, but with, with a Yeah, with a more critical eye than just like... Oh, how do we how do we talk about a game that like makes money or does well? Like, how do we think about games as objects of capitalism, right? So, oh, how do we wow, how do we okay. study their supply chains? Mm -hmm. uh, how do we talk about their conditions of production, Labor, right? The, all of yeah, that stuff. and so yeah. you know, one of the things that I I try to get my students to do in the undergrad version of this course is to be able to articulate a very small argument about a game, mostly by looking at how the game is sold, who produced the game, yeah. and what kinds of like circuits of consumption and distribution it moves through, right? Got it, got it. Um, so this is a game, I th is this only on Switch? This is on Switch and PC. Okay. And uh, you can only get it on the Epic Game Store. Pos you know, Epic's positioning in one part has been that they offer better, um, uh, better revenue splits to mm -hmm. game developers, mm -hmm. right? Okay. So there's been a move of some indies. So their cut is smaller than uh, Yeah, so Steam, Steam you would get, you know, maybe 70-30. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, whereas uh, Epic's commitment, at least the last time I checked, was that you would, that Epic only takes 12%, whereas Steam takes 30%. Right? I see. Which is a okay. pretty sizable difference. Right. Um, especially if you're a small developer, right? Absolutely. And so Epic has been trying to basically eat Steam's lunch a bit, by um, getting in on exclusives, mm -hmm, uh, brokering mm -hmm. deals with with indie so developers. This is clearly one of those examples, and 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 Nintendo also known for not necessarily having a, a open doors to yeah. third party developers. Although recently with the Switch and other platforms, they're starting to really get into the indie game space. I guess you would say. Yeah, and yeah. this this is a kind of iconic indie game in mm -hmm. that sense, right? Mm -hmm. There's not. It's it's hard to make a game that sells for a single price point that makes any money anymore, right? right? The entire 
market has transitioned over to subscription or microtransaction modes of making money. So mm -hmm. something, mm -hmm. a game that you buy for a single unit of money and then you never have to pay for again right. um, is almost classic in a sense, right? There's mm -hmm. something almost vintage about that set of yeah. financial relationships <laughs> at this point, right? Like you're not going to ask me for like, you know, um, almost every game we interact with has those kinds of dynamics except for a lot of the games in the indie space. Um, but the the counterpoint to that is game and you play it. Yeah, yeah, but the counterpoint to that is that indie games have often struggled to be sustainable, yeah. right, for yeah. their for their developers. And and House House did. I mean, this is a it's delightfully made. I think it's a real um, it's a real exercise in game design. Mm -hmm, there's mm -hmm. three or four simple activities. Yeah. There's a world with objects in so, it. So so this is I mean uh, as far as launches go, um, Untitled Goose Game is every indie maker's dream, right? It yeah. came out and everybody was talking about it. It was great for uh, m you know memes and other things on the internet, and it was a different kind of game too, right? It just felt kind of quaint and sweet. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think there's parts of this game that have the um, the the making chaos out of order kind of mm -hmm. dynamics that you see in something like Katamari. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I think it also has a particularly the setting has a touch of the kind of. Um, slow experiential gardening games or kind mm. of like, the, you know, these games that are really about being set in nature or in these kind of small environments. There's a, little there's villages a, with people who are recognizable. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Bo, you've, you've heard of some of this, right? Like the, the work on, there's been a little a small strain of work about um, g games that are, are kind of rep, like the, the exercise of, of producing like a small garden, mm. right? Like this kind of minuscule set of like environmental activities that we go and escape into mm. in this in this larger kind of uh, you know industrial world of right. like right where this these are not the kinds of jobs or experiences we have anymore. Right, yeah. this kind of yeah. quaint, yeah. almost quasi-British. Right, yeah, uh, yeah. sensibility that this game has. Filling um, some form of fantasy here, where it's like yeah, or wow, or a kind of to work in their garden. A, it's hearkening to yeah, like a nostalgia that for a time period that we don't even understand, right, or that like we don't have because any actual has relationship to. Jobs and gig economy. Yeah, this this goose is not part of the gig economy, no. and I think the <laughs> I think the loosely structured goals assist with that, right? Mm -hmm. There's the list, but you're not actually being. Um, cordon to do anything and so I think it's a game that uses like a set of small elements to produce a really rich set of um, unique and meaningful experiences inside this really closed little environment like it's a really good example of how to design simply. Yeah. I yeah. wonder though, like this feels like a task rabbit list, right? There's something. Yeah, about, like, there is something about it. You setup, do have right? to like complete these things, right, yeah. to move on to the next. Uh, and I'm curious to see like how tasks. necessary those will be, right? Like, yeah. is it just that we have these tasks we can do X number, we can choose not to do them, um, or is it you know the kind of classic gating where you have to go through I these think, tasks? I think it's gating. I didn't get far. I got kind of stuck at getting the rake in the lake and I was playing oh, it on a okay. keyboard and it didn't feel as good. Mm, um, mm -hmm. The controller does, I think, feel it, it nicer. Feels good, right? Oh, you've got a cabbage. Oh, it's time to harvest oh, that I cabbage. Oh, I can move this cabbage. Yeah. I think you bet you could grab it. But there is, yeah, Lane, I hadn't thought of that, but what's really funny about this game is it starts you off 
Um, and you're not gardening, but there are a lot of great um, gardening games that have yeah. been really successful and, and, and people are loving to play. Um, and that fantasy of labor that the garden is like, you know, you're yeah, working on Yeah, this kind of back it, to the earth. Yeah, um, yeah. Bo. Yes. What makes this game queer? So if you want the start of the queer reading of this game, yeah. there's a bunch of scholarship on queer mess. Oh. And the way that um, queerness is associated with like making things messy and messing up when things are ordered yeah, and in standard taxonomies. So know. you're just like, I presume it's going to keep happening that you have to mess things up, like you move that bag of dirt oh, to get yeah. the things you want by making a mess out of things. Ooh. I'm just my guess is that's going to. What is it? so? So where does that come from? You know, the the notion of a mess being yeah. sort of queer piece of queer activism, or is that? Yeah. So the idea is like that the thing that we think of as being tidy uh -huh. is a very like straight normative set of ideas. So like a really tidy kind of like heteronormative no, house no, no. Ah. or um, people who fit really tidily into identity categories. Right. And that queerness kind of messes up those categories. It messes up that way of living. Oh, yeah. Um, so there's, yeah, it's there's a bunch of... non-normative. Right. And so it's not so it organized in a certain way that's... Ex yeah. yeah. And it, it like messes with that organization. Mm. So yeah, there's a bunch of queer theory writing about it. Um, and I'm gonna guess this goose is a agent of chaos and yeah. messiness. A queer mess. Yeah, and unless maybe he starts cleaning things up. But my, my thought is he's probably just gonna be a butt. To me, okay, if as a designer we're looking at the uh, kind of core mechanic of this game, it is messing stuff up and terrorizing people. So, but we talked about a few different games to play tonight, yeah. and um, a few of the other ones, um, which I think are pretty easily accessible. One is definitely online, and you can play for free. is called uh, a Realistic Kissing Simulator. Yeah, Realistic Kissing Simulator is browser-based, so you uh -huh. can totally just play online. Mm -hmm. uh, it's two players. It's very awkward and very queer, and I highly recommend it. It was made by Jimmy Andrews and Lauren Schmidt. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and you just stand uh, side by side at a keyboard with somebody and you control these long floppy tongues. Oh my gosh. And yeah. you kiss someone. Just with, how kissing is. It's you know? just how long kissing floppy is. tongues. But that's the thing. So yeah. I talk about this game a lot. I give um, the presentations, I use it in mm -hmm. class. Mm -hmm. And it's called Realistic Kissing Simulator. So that seems like that's the joke that it's not realistic because it's, <laughs> it's very goofy looking. Yeah. But then inevitably, Inevitably, people are like, no, that's what kissing feels like to me. That it captures like a realistic kind of awkwardness. Wow, yeah. Uh, like, what do you do with that long yeah. floppy tongue you got in there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that game is absolutely ridiculous and can be played in about five minutes, I would say. You can play it in like 20 seconds. You can yeah. play it forever if wow. you want to. Wow. As long it as the internet ends. exists, you can keep playing it. So, there, and what, well, what are some of the sort of factors of that game that really truly make it? queer, do you think? Yeah, so I think it's a really great example of queerness in design. Mm -hmm. So it's a super simple game, but yeah. it has all these elements that relate to gender and sexuality in ways that aren't normative. So um, it's really big on consent. Uh -huh. So there's a whole consent mechanic. When you start, you have to hold down keys to ask someone if they want to kiss you. There's a speech oh, bubble that comes out. That's nice, yeah. They have to respond, yes. Okay, that's great. Um, and then the way the controls work, to have your tongue out and all floppy, you have to mm -hmm. hold down keys so you can release at any time mm -hmm. and your tongue will retract. retract. Okay. And then you've stopped, your consent is done. Okay, um, yeah. So there's that. There's also just the kind of freeformness. So mm -hmm. um, I interviewed Jimmy and Lauren about the project, um, and they intentionally gave it no goal. 
So there's no way is you there no way there's no way to win the game. No like your win. tongue is the longest and floppiest, or no, you're a kisser. No, there's no there's no directions. Wow. There are no goals. Okay. And so they did that. No on points. No you're points. not getting points. No points. No, no oh. quantifying of kissing. No Bases. quantifying. I guess you're you're getting to first base. I yeah. I mean, it depends who's yeah whose uh, ballpark you're in. I guess maybe. so. You know? It depends <laughs> right how you count. Like you can poke right. people in the eye or the nose. Maybe there's a different system for that. Oh, wow. I don't know. Yeah. Um, nope. There's no points. There's no levels. There's just you like lick each other for as long as you <laughs> agree to uh -huh. and then you're done wow. um, and so they explicitly think about that as a way to kind of resist the way that sex and romance have been turned into you know something you should a game win, something you should be good at right into a game <laughs> yeah um i had a student ask me once is is we were talking about sort of how people use the idea of game to explain politics and other yeah. things in life and they were like is tinder a game I think probably. Tinder has it. a meta game, I think, for yeah. sure. Yeah. 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 But this is why I also love Naomi Clark's Consentical, yes. um, which is a tabletop game that's about sex between a human and an alien. Um, and it's about like a sexual encounter and it has um, quanti quantified bits and tokens for like intimacy and pleasure. You have to match up cards. And the first time I played it, I was like, Naomi, this is kind of messed up. It's got like points. Right. Like oh why my gosh. is our like queer sex rendered into points? Um, and she was like, no, no, that's the point. Like that it's a critique of the way that even in queer communities, we still have these ways of being like, did you score really good? Did you get all the queer pleasure? Oh, um, right. So it made, yeah. it like clicked for me when I realized that it's, mm -hmm. it's like the design itself is a critique. The, the fun thing about Consentacles, when it ends, you look at the win, you know, the kind of like win condition at the, at the, at the back of the rule book. Um, and essentially, you don't really get like, oh, you did great or you didn't right. do well. You you get these sort of like almost cosmo cosmopolitan quiz answers, right? Yeah. Like, oh, you and your partner are definitely, you know, <laughs> exploring different kinds of power dynamics that might not be healthy or, you know, depending on, on yeah. the outcomes. Yeah. Um, so I, I do love that about the game. And I guess this idea of resisting like a win state, which seems yeah. like all games, you know, if it's a game, it's got to have a win state. No, or maybe, or yeah. yes, or maybe we don't care what a game is, mm -hmm. or maybe, yeah, yeah, all those things. That's great. But I think certainly one thing that queerness can do for us is like get us to question what our what the goals are and like who sets the idea that we're supposed to win in certain ways. We're supposed to want certain things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So what if like when you play something instead of wanting to win by the way that the game defines that you want to like take a different kind of pleasure. You know, you just yeah. want to like swim around with a rake in a lake for a while. So, Lane, you said you said something like metagame. What is a what do you what do you what's a metagame? So, so there, How's I'm there I'm a metagame of Tinder. Is there a metagame to this game? Um, probably. I mean, all I would say all games have metagames, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I think for example, like taking an image capture, sharing it online, and having it be part of the like viral sensation that is this game. There's absolutely a metagame to that. Mm, yeah. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm using the term metagame um, or thinking about it through uh, to my friends and colleagues at UC Davis, uh, Stephanie Bullock and Patrick Lemieux wrote a book called Metagaming. And so their, their idea is that, that metagames are about the games 
with, uh, what are the, how do they put it, about, within, around, and without games. I was actually using this theory very recently. Um, I also teach an MA class in game studies, uh, also about the political economy of, of games, but that class has really turned into a class that is almost entirely focused on free-to-play games. Oh, interesting. So every student picks a game with like heavy-handed monetization, like in-game, like multiple in-game currencies, so we're doing like everything from like Arena of Valor to Clash of Clans to Brawl Stars to Need for Speed to like Love Live to like Nikki Dress Up Queen. It's every one of them has a different kind of game. And their goal is to kind of study how monetization and mechanics intertwine. Um, but I have a student doing Dota. Mm. And Dota is a game where the monetization actually has nothing to do with the gameplay, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't follow a free-to-play mechanism, so... So yeah, the metagame of Goose Game might just be adding to the Goose memes in a big way, right? Mm -hmm. And also doing some of the stuff we're doing, which is just like, will all these things float? Yeah, because um, I think some games probably have stronger or lighter metagames. So mm. uh, Patrick in particular, is a, he does a lot of work on speedrunning. So speedrunning uh. is a game within a game, right? Uh, anytime you see a speedrun, that's a metagame, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, my student and I were talking about how Dota 2 monetizes its metagame, but not mm. the game itself, right? And that was like, a, like we both were in my office, we were, just felt like our Wait, heads exploded. Wait, what does that mean? Okay, so Dota 2, for those who are uninitiated, is a sort of mass fighting game. Yeah. Strategy. Strategy game, heavy. but you don't, there's no real... The things that you would buy in the game, the microtransactions you would do are just for buying skins. They're cosmetic. They don't impact mm -hmm. gameplay at all. Right, okay. Uh, traditionally in free-to-play, games are monetized by putting a monetary barrier between mm. your, between you and an, like an action or you and a reward or you and an expansion, right? They actually throttle the game loop. And Dota doesn't right. do that. You can play Dota all you want and the refusal to spend money has no impact on the gameplay itself, right? I see. And yeah. so what Dota actually monetizes is the whole social all the stuff dynamic. Around it. Yeah. All like the way yeah, you look and the yeah, yeah. okay. And the also the experience have. of participating with a group in being invested in these like weekly tournaments and all of that. Like that's the Dota isn't it's right. it makes money not off the game but off the metagame. Yeah. Um, so I have an advisee Ian Larson who's awesome who's mm -hmm. doing his research on Fortnite um, and how Fortnite um, use it straight so Fortnite's free to play but skins cost things yeah. uh -huh. um, and the kind of socioeconomic like cultural side of skins so even though you can play Fortnite f and pay no money yeah there's a whole culture around like what do your skins mean about you like do they mean oh, that you're wow. a beginner do they mean that you're expert like does your skin there's like cool skins and uncool skins oh, kind of like in school yeah. like if I you mean, don't have the right sneakers it's yeah a, but you got to earn it too that's ooh, the thing like okay, if you have okay. a really rare expensive skin and you're not good at Fortnite, apparently like it's very culturally like that does not fit the cultural etiquette like you have to be good enough to suit your skin oh and then right. there's a whole metagame around like okay i'm gonna use a really beginner skin but I'm really good. Oh, so, so you're going to think I suck. But I'm going to snipe you from the top of yeah. the tower I just it's built. It's like people who just go with like the default like clothing yep. option in PUBG or something, right? Yeah. And you mm -hmm. look like you suck, but actually you're really, really good. But then the metagame keeps shifting. So like every time I see Ian present on this, like he'll come and talk to my undergrad classes and he'll be, someone in the audience will be like, but that's not true. Like as of last week. Oh no. Now there's a new, so like Fortnite has instituted a thing where you can't revert back to the original um, like starter skin oh. once you hit a certain point because then you would be passing yourself. So it's like, 
this whole system where this game that's free to play actually like you have to be paying into in order to have the social capital. Well, where do you think this game sits on a spectrum of like structured to unstructured activity? I think it I think I I'm unclear yet like whether it wants to look unstructured but is actually quite structured mm -hmm. or whether it look structured because of the like task system and is actually more unstructured. I think like it kind of depends the order of operations we're going in. Like are we mm -hmm. actually do we actually need to be doing these things one by one by one? Is it just an illusion that we're kind of choosing what we do next? I mean, I definitely remember a big part of I think I feel like when queer games kind of I don't want to use the word started, but when they kind of became a, a phenomena, maybe five, six I would say 2012 is when this movement started. How did that yes. happen? What, what kicked it off? Um, so there was a kind of core group of people, um, many of them trans women, living mm -hmm. in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, um, mm -hmm. many of them in Oakland. And so that's a kind of core moment of like artistic collaboration right. and energy. Um, so it was really localized. It, it, like, it takes a community, you know, in a certain way yeah. for the movement to kick off. It's complicated. And because, a few games that are like, yeah. you know, recognized. Yeah. I think it's, you know, to say it was just like that one group or to suggest that group was itself unified, that, you know, it's the way that artistic, artistic, right. what we think of as artistic right. movements go, it's actually more complicated. Mm -hmm. But I think that that work inspired more people, which inspired more people. Right. Um, 2013 is when we had the first Queerness in Games conference, and okay. we had the first arcade of queer games, and yeah. from there it's just grown and grown. Like it, you know, when you live inside this stuff, it uh -huh. starts to feel normal, but every time I'm on itch, I'm like, and that's another hundred LGBT tagged games that have appeared in the last two weeks. It's in, it's exploded, yeah, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, yeah. queer creators are making games that really push at the conventions of games too. Yeah, like yeah. it feels to me like, so, so back to an initial question, we don't have to ask about what makes the goose game queer, although mm. I, I want to put a pin in that. Yeah, yeah, totally. To talk that through, but, but what makes a game queer, we're starting to kind of, I think, get at the edges, right? We yeah. talked about realistic kissing simulator, not having a win condition or being mm -hmm. kind of, you know, having consent built into the game, which is something you usually don't see in a game. Um, what else, what are some of the other, so, so it's, is it, it's not just about LGBTQ yeah, yeah, characters. It's, it's really, I think queer yeah. games is really not a represent, it's, it's not solely ever a representational practice, right. especially right. when right. the way you see those deployed in like AAA or big mainstream games, oh, right? Yeah, it's just like change the skin. <laughs> and then you yeah. have two same-sex characters. Yeah, and yeah. There's nothing queer I mean, which about has, them. Has you know, it's yeah. awesome. You know, I was I, I read a lot of fanfic about Liara and Femship. Mm. You know, when that game ended, I really went through a period of mourning. What is that? About that. Is that Dragon Quest? Mass Effect. Oh, Mass Effect. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I had a, a I had many feelings about yeah. that, but yeah, but that's a whole other thing. Like queer mm -hmm. fandom is its whole own thing too. No, I mean I totally agree. I think for me, what's interesting um, about games and what makes games queer is not. LGBT representation. Mm -hmm. It's not like AAA games that uh, have put in, you know, one more gay character. It's the way that games are designed, the way that games are played, the way that like any time a game kind of resists norms that are associated with gender and sexuality. Um, right. And play is like that, right? Like games are fundamentally related to that because they're about playing and exploring systems mm -hmm. and um, trying out, like making different worlds and trying different ways of being. Um, right. So yeah, I think there's, 
There are certain games that you can read as queer, but there's also just the experience of playing games can be a really queer experience. Right, Like right. the pleasure, there's like a queer pleasure in getting to like live in this world and, and explore this different way of mm -hmm. being. Mm -hmm, for sure. And, and, and we often do try, um, I like your sort of, you know, non-strategic strategy of playing a game where you just sort of play it, <laughs> right? We often try to not necessarily play the game as it's meant to be played, yeah. but, but there's a way to play it differently. Um, but it's tempting. Cool. Like you yeah. get pulled in right, with this game too. It's like, okay, all right, we poked we at the edges. See more. Like, but what yeah. happens, right? Like, how yeah. do I get past the gating? How do I? Are there something that feels good about checking off the accomplishments? Right. Um, but that's the thing that I really love about some queer indie games that they like. They recognize that they're they're playing around with that, right? Like mm -hmm. they're giving you something that's about not necessarily seeing people on screen, but like. What's an experience you don't expect? What's an experience right. that resists what we think games should be? Do you think there could ever be a queer AAA game? Okay, let's think through what, what that, that would mean. mean. Okay, so, so it means a gigantic uh, undertaking, 200 people making the game, a, a big company. So here's the problem that I see with it, and I think mm. this probably is in your wheelhouse lane, which is like, okay, let's say a game takes this idea, it's not just about like skinning LGBT representation, it's about the structures of a game, it's about the designed experience of a game. Okay, let's say a AAA studio, super big, makes a really big designed queerly game. Right. It's still part of a like capitalist system and a normative system that is not that's like part of a larger heteronormative repressive culture. So <laughs> this, is, this is true. Yeah. <laughs> so like can like can a studio, can a team of two hundred people working mm. for a company of two thousand people producing a like highly profitable product that happens to be queer, like what what, what do we do? Yeah, be? so like yeah. for you, can right. only indie games be queer? I've actually never thought about this question of like, could there truly be a AAA game that is That's like queer cool. in all these ways? And I feel yeah. like at the like there are market reasons why I would be very skeptical that mm -hmm. that would ever get made mm -hmm. as an object. But I wonder if the conditions of its production, the labor through which it's produced doesn't undermine the radicalness that is fundamental to something being queer. It's designed by committee, right? So, and also yeah. just the expectations from a studio are that yeah. this game's going to make money. We're, we're investing a lot right. in it and it's a, uh, you know, games are a real risky proposition. So that's huh. a, I mean, I think that's a reason why probably realistically that game would not get mm -hmm. made in mm -hmm. the first place. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it's like, even if it did, what would it mean? Okay, well, here's yeah. a scenario. Here's a scenario where you might sure. be able to have a queer AAA game. I think that as people are playing games, games like this, Untitled Goose Game, as a great example, is an indie game that has just taken the world by storm. It is probably one of the most successful games of the year. Yeah. Even if you set it alongside AAA games that it's are out gonna there. It's going to get all um, the... Certainly as an indie game, it's highly successful. Yeah. Um, but so more of these kinds of games might open the door to games that are made differently or might... Sure, yeah. ...look different and we might expect some of our expectations to be subverted in a game, potentially? Maybe. It kind of yeah. depends what your goals are. Like, it kind of oh, depends. Or, yeah. Like, our, if you, the, the big, it's not the royal you, but mm -hmm. not you, Colleen, the big yeah, you. The big you, yeah. If you are interested in making AAA more queer, more experimental, more mm -hmm. radical, or whether you're interested in, like, turning focus away from AAA right. and being like, like, will this game mean that we see more goose-like things in AAA? Like, maybe. <laughs> maybe. But, like, is that the, the point we're going for, or is it more, like, right. kind of, like, celebrating and investigating the strange things that are currently on the margins of games? Right.
Yeah. yeah, I think you might be right. I think a triple A queer game is a. I just I wonder if that's like a fundamental a contradiction. Oxymoron. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I guess that would be a question for kind of what are the the stakes of doing queer games work? Because yeah. if it's if if there if it is impossible for anything created in a triple A structure mm. to be queer, then like why bother? Right. right. Why bother? Why, like, why bother? I mean, I think there can be things that are. Or I mean, like, why direct one's efforts to the AAA? Yeah. Right. Yeah. If they're, yeah. if they're, if if yeah. its capitalist function means that it can, I mean, yeah, that it can't quite like ever clip into this. Or, or maybe the better question is why should AAA care? Yeah. That's a good, good maybe that's yeah. the better argue yeah. like way of reversing that. So that's an argument that I end up getting asked a lot because like I'll go to industry spaces like GDC or like the, it's the kind of first question that game devs ask who are outside the indie space of like why should I do this in mm -hmm. my games and mm -hmm. the, so there's the easy sell answer and then there's the hard sell answer and the easy sell answer that everyone wants to hear is because you can sell your game to more people. Diversity is good. More diversity in exactly. players. Exactly. Yeah. More consumers. Right. Untapped markets, etc. Right. right. Capitalism. Totally. And that one, that one works as an argument. Yeah. So yeah. if you're trying to like sneak something in, that one works. But I think the other side of things, like there's a social justice argument to be made. There's a you know like AAA. I'm not a huge well, I don't. I'm selective with my AAA games. But like mm -hmm. there are a lot of people they matter to immensely. Yeah. And there are a lot of like queer people out there in the world for whom it it actually matters a ton to see themselves represented in those games. So I think that's a big piece of it. Just like letting those people feel what they want to feel in their game. Even if for you representationalism is not the kind of what makes a game queer. Right. And I think also like having that be our the goal that we really highlight like representation and inclusion, mm -hmm. we end up including people both in games and in the production of games into systems that are like into games labor which is often right. exploitative, right? Like what does it mean to want to include more people in the development process if the development process like is deeply broken? Is not, deeply broken, yeah, not right? Healthy. Yeah. Um, and the same with some triple games, like in terms of representation. So I think it's like those things have their value, but we have to take them with like a huge grain of salt. Yeah. Um, and also be thinking beyond that surface level representation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are there? Because um, I, are it's queer games is like. I'm, I am familiar with the large touchstones of yeah. the, the space. Are there like core disagreements within the theoretical field? Yeah. Are those like forming already? So one of the things I really love, so um, I feel like my personality with these things is to be everybody's cheerleader, uh -huh. um, which is funny because I'm actually a deeply skeptical and misanthropic person. <laughs> um, but uh, so I would say one thing we've worked really hard with the Queerness in Games Conference and the publications around queer game studies is to foster like people rooting for each other. Mm -hmm. um, so I wouldn't say that there have been like academic fights. Not wars necessarily, but some yeah. debates. But So there are some points of tension, right? So uh -huh. um, take Dream Daddy, for example. There are some queer folks and queer game studies What's scholars. Dream Daddy? Thank you. Yeah. So Dream Daddy is a daddy dating simulator. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I believe it's tagline. It is a daddy dating. A daddy sim dating so is it dads dating dads, it, or like you're a mom looking for a dad? Are you a? It is dads dating dads, okay. and uh, these are literal dads, so like men with kids. Um, and Do the kids come on the dates. No, I don't think I don't think any of the dads involve the kids. I haven't played through all the possible uh, branches because there are lots of different branches to the narrative. Maybe there are kids on dates. I don't know. 
Um, there's at least one dad I you're hitting on. They meet yeah. through their kids. Yeah, I was gonna I say that. Yeah, like one of them often has his baby strapped to his chest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's a game that um, is like very sweet, um, focused on men dating men, and um, got a lot of praise from queer folks who were like, "I love that this is not like overly sexualized. I love that this is focused on um, queer relationships." You can build your dad, um, there's a customization system, and uh, your dad bod can involve a binder, so trans guys felt mm. like it was much more inclusive in that way. So there's one camp that's people, queer games people who are like, I love Dream Daddy. And there's another camp of people who are like, fuck you, Dream Daddy. Oh, wow. Um, people who don't like Dream Daddy because, um, because there's no sex in it. It's like a very desexualized mm. representation of um, dating and like connections Who between men. Who makes Dream Daddy? Yeah, so Dream Daddy is made by a group called Game Grumps, um, or so, like officially produced by Game Grumps, but made by specific Game Grumps, broadly speaking. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, not not queer people, really. Oh, there I was, see. Yeah, so um, the team of core designers, I believe that one of them identifies as a, maybe as a queer woman. There's. Mostly their team is not queer people. Okay. Um, and so that was part of the concern, hmm. that this is a representation of um, like romance and sexual connection between queer men made by no queer men. <laughs> and that, you know. the concern there, yeah. There are some very valid, so in, within queer game studies, there are some people writing things that are like, this is such a great thing because it shows queerness in a way that decouples it from sex and therefore allows it to be like intimate and more meaningful. And then there are people who are like, um, it's really problematic to say that queer sex, your queerness is only meaningful when you decouple it from sex. Like that's really important. The game mm. itself, like where, what is the, uh, what is the game's desire or intent? Like, right, is this a, is it, is it released as an indie game? Is this a game that is trying to monetize in some particular way? Yeah, like, no, I would call it an indie game. Okay. It is. Um, so that 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 was definitely a the dating dating in, daddy. In, yeah, dad daddy dating. Fuck. <laughs> Dream Daddy. Dream, Dream Daddy. 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 Right. A dad dating simulator. Dad dating um, simulator. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a rift. I'd say it's like what's interesting to me about that is it shows that there are like different viewpoints even within this thing that we think of as one community. And I think yeah. it's useful to remember that like queer people are all different people, and yeah. that like we, it's there's a value in that like community claiming, but that like there are still different perspectives and and like values within that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and those those reflect larger, or I mean, I guess relationally similar divides within queer studies Absolutely. as a, as a yeah. broader And queer field. communities more yeah. broadly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And I sit in a weird place with it because on the one hand, like, I'm AFAB, I'm non-binary, I'm like, I'm closely, more closely aligned in identity with the people who are like, I love Dream Daddy. Right. But I'm on the side that's like, stripping sex out of queerness is a way of like, taming and normalizing sex, or right. queerness. queerness. And so yeah. like, I feel very, <laughs> I feel very confused on the two sides. Right. So it's easier to just be like, let us observe what's happening here. Yeah. <laughs> what it yeah. says about our queer values. Right. So can we yeah. answer that question? Uh, is Untitled Goose Game a queer game? Uh, uh, do we feel like we've reached? Do have we, we feel like we have more to play? I mean, I've I've gotten through. What are our What are our next challenges? We're in a new place, and I still haven't found it because I'm just kind of wandering around back here. I'll say that my response to it so far is kind of like my response to Donut County. When Donut mm. County was announced, it mm. took like four years between when Donut County was announced for it to come out, and it's not. It's a, a similar scale. Yeah, I'd say it's about a similar yeah, scale. Yeah, that mm -hmm. sounds right. Um, yeah. And I was so 
so excited because it's a game about holes. It's a about game about making just like big holes in the ground right. and making so everything fall down yes. into the holes. Yes. yes. Um, and I was like, this is going to be the queerest game <laughs> ever. I cannot wait. And then it was, it's so controlled. For me, that game is so carefully designed and its puzzles are so carefully designed that it doesn't let you devolve into the kind of chaos that something that like Katamari does. Mm. Right. And I feel like- Which is about a ball. <laughs> it is. It is. You're rolling and, and it's sticky. It's yes. a sticky ball that uh, captures everything. Um, if it's the right size. So I wonder if there isn't a little bit of that here too, that there's this like potential for this like making a mess out of things, disrupting the order, like right. being the agent that's like taking this like normie little town and making it strange, but maybe it doesn't push it far enough. Well, or yeah. I think the game would either need an actual narrative, yeah, uh -huh, uh -huh. or the game needs these like chill gating mechanisms, mm. right? But I think I think this as well, as fun as this series of interactions is, I would get I would. Um, you know, this isn't like the incredible machine, right? I don't mm -hmm. like. I, 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 I would not be inclined to like experiment in this space without a goal endlessly. Yeah, yeah, right. I, agree. It I mean, yeah, it's got a to-do list. You know, it kind of fulfills the conventions of games. And yeah, I mean, there's a there's a tip to the spear, but it's pretty mm -hmm. soft, right? And yeah. there's no there's. Can we go back? What does that mean? A tip like, to the spear, like, but it's uh, soft. the 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 game has goals, right? Yeah. Right, but they're they're loosely implemented, right? And yeah. there's no real risk proposition to not carrying them out, except right. the possibility of not being able to continue. For yeah, certain right. Ones. And yeah. so I think mm -hmm. there, so there are a, a limited number of things you must do in order to be able to enter into these new spaces, right? I mean, I wonder what the game would feel like if you. You probably get a better sense of satisfaction when the b through getting these new areas opened up to you, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It provides a very classic sense of like, oh, look right. what I accomplished, right. Yeah. right? Rather than having access to all of it at once and then doing a kind of where's Waldo situation with like crossing them all off, right? Right, right. When it becomes your incentive, right? Like more so than checking any one of, one of those things off the list, it's like, I want to open yeah. up new space, I want to explore more. Yeah, I want to see like what new sets of objects and interactions and people yeah. Yeah. Right, are yeah. behind this thing. Um, so yeah, I think, I think queer potential, queer potential, maybe the, In this game. the, the yeah, maybe yeah. the queerest thing about Goose Game is that you're a goose. I mean, there's that. You're, I, like Lane was saying, right, your gender is, is up for question. Yeah. But I think actually if Absolutely. I were... Um, <laughs> your gender is goose. Um, <laughs> I think if I were to do... Sorry, like, my pronoun is goose. Yeah. yeah. I thought about that for a while. Like, no pronoun, just like uh, the name of, of some kind of animal. Um, I think if I were to, to do a queer analysis of this game, it would actually look at the, the response, probably. It would actually mm, be more about, the, like... The metagame around it. Yeah, like, what people have done it. with it, and, like, in what way has it resonated with people. Because, like, the worlds I live in tend to be queer games worlds. Like, just the communities that I'm in, and I've seen that it kind of resonate with people in that space. So I'd be curious to look at what people have been posting, the kind of, like, social media presence for this game, and uh -huh. see, like how they've clicked, how it's clicked with clear players. Yeah, with why has it seen so liberatory and, um, right, because it's no surprise the people who like the game, right? Right, right. Like that seems, 
But also, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the conversation it's gotten has been about the game's accessibility to non-gamers. Also, oh, that this yeah. like one of the when it first came out for that first week, a lot of the reasons it was getting into mainstream news outlets was because this was a game that people who di hadn't played game. Whoa! Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. A little like Rube Goldberg machine yeah. there. Yeah. Um, that people who didn't play games were feeling like this was accessible to this them. This was a game yeah. for them, yeah. Yeah. I think especially on something like the Switch, right? And so yeah. there were stories uh, yeah. of people like saying, oh, I showed this game to my partner who doesn't like games and they think this is a riot, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So there was it a lot of has... that conversation. Um, so it's in an interesting way, I think, mechanically speaking, it's kind of expanded the space of what maybe you know, a game the, the, the normies might think games are, right? Because yeah, I, yeah. I think we've had a lot, there's been a lot of experimentation, but that it can also be kind of inaccessible if you're just not into games. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think there are different kinds of normies though, right? There's like the non, the people who don't normally play games normies, and I can totally see what you mean, where they're like, oh, video games aren't just first-person shooters, they're also, they when can, I was that I can be a goose. Yeah, but they yeah. do this not want to play so like absurd. experiential, queer, like, right. you know, right. like, right, that's right. not gonna make any sense to them. Right. right. Mm -hmm. um, but the gamer normies, like there has been oh. pushback on this game yeah. too, like where people have been like, oh, this is a game for social justice warriors, and it's like, this oh, is literally wow. a goose. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and the irony being like, you, like you're saying, like you could see this as a trolling game, right? And that actually clicks pretty well with jerks on the internet so it's mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. it's it's raised a politics within within kind of indie games of like who is this for is this really a game like all that all the things that all we the, expect yeah, to happen typically if a game does something unexpected and great the question but is it a game can will consistently come up and that happens a lot with queer yeah. queer authored games and this idea of gatekeeping yeah. Um, what it, yeah. What can so be I a think game? I think the ways in which this game has challenged a set of norms about what games are have made it kind of an obvious indie hit, and also I think accessible and sympathetic probably to queer gamers. Yeah. Um, I think also like representation is an interesting thing okay. here. Like I know that you're a goose, but I know that f like for me at least far more meaningful in a game than having someone who like looks just like me or identifies just yeah. like me. Like I actually like kind of gender questionable like animal non-human characters like that's you know that to me as a queer person that's what feels most comfortable mm -hmm. um so there's something kind of nice about that like it's adrian shaw does work on this that we think that queer people people of color like just want to see people who look like them in games and actually identification is way more complicated and interesting than that yeah um so i'm all for like identifying with this goose. Octodad yeah. is my very favorite character and i am all about being an octopus too so <laughs> that's cool <laughs> Or uh, you mentioned the game I Am Bread to me yeah. uh, before, just being a piece of bread. Absolutely, being like just a wobbly, a floppy piece of bread, bizarre piece of bread who's like living in some family's kitchen in the middle of the night, doing strange, dirty things. Yeah, you literally, you're like getting dirty, and everything's <laughs> everything's dirty all around you. Well, we're an agent of uh, queer mess potentially yeah, here potentially. As, as our goose. We are definitely. Gender equals goose. And and there's a lot of object relations happening in this game. Yeah, true, true. yeah. So, so yeah. I don't know. Should we do a vote? Uh, what, what's everybody think? I, I would say, <laughs> I would say this is, is this a, a faculty meeting. Yeah, what's going on? yeah. Uh, uh, I, I haven't looked at the bylaws. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. Do I think this game is queer? I think it can. I be. mean, that's a historically specific question. It yeah. Is.
Thank you, thank you, historian. <laughs> right? I mean, if this, uh, right, I wonder if I think it's not, like there's too much about the way game, like indie games like this can exist now that telegraph the potential for its existence to yeah. really imagine it as, like this game is not unimaginable, right? This game right. like makes sense mm -hmm. um, as a set of, um, like there's a way that this game came to exist that is like coherent, right? With a large body of independent, independent game, pro games. game production, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, it what what I think raises like would we even be asking this question if it had not been so popular? It's a good right? question. Yeah. I mean, it's a question I ask every time I play anything. But I hear what you're saying. I mean, I think, yeah. I think for me, it's the markers that like made me ask that question are things like we're playing as this like. It, there's a kind of absurdity here. There's like a, um, you are a character that's pushing back against the kind of social order around you. It's absurd. It's the aesthetics resist the kind of like masculinist, like super, super straight aesthetic. heroic monomyth. It's right. an anti-heroic. I mean, so we were talking before we started shooting about like what's the history. I think you were asking mm -hmm. Elena about the mm -hmm. history of like. <laughs> Birds of I don't know what's what's poultry, poultry, what's fowl. I don't know what those uh, things. Yeah, mean, those exactly. you know these are not my areas of expertise. Yeah. Fowl-based games, fowl, fowl, anti-heroes or heroes in games. <laughs> There's Flappy Bird. Oh, there is Flappy um, Bird. Yeah, you know, uh, definitely a precursor. Yeah. Um, but it is a relatively untapped. Well, it's making me think about Kevin Cancian's upcoming game. Um, Go on. Uh, home home free. free. But I've been thinking a lot about his game, which also you, you take on the identity of a dog, and he spent a lot of time trying to think about what is scary for a dog. Like, yeah. how, do you, how do you represent the experience of being a dog lost in an urban space right. that can't, you know, can't communicate with humans? Like, he's thinking a lot about, like, dog subjectivity yeah. Yeah. in the process of, of making this game. Um, and the limits dogs have for getting their needs met, right, mm -hmm. in any particular mm -hmm. situation. But I think his game is much also, it's, it's not quite an RPG, it's maybe not, it's not quite a survival game. Like you have to find food and make right. friends, and, and there is this potential that you could find your owner, but I think right. there's other, um, there's other kind of day-to-day -day activities I think that are that happen that give the game a sense of like structure and stakes purpose mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. um, well I feel like we've uh, explored quite a bit here in terms of geese queerness triple a well I think we should just play this all night uh, and uh, we'll you know to be determined I think I think I think untitled goose game is a great game did it, but do you think it's a queer a game? With it. Uh, absolutely. Um, but only because we're playing it. I agree with that statement. <laughs> that is that is a statement I can get behind. Yeah. 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 I think we make it queer. Yes. And uh, with that, I just really want to thank both of you for coming by to play this game. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Lane's still playing. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to take this to a comfortable couch uh, at my place or something and... Uh, Play for a <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lane. Thanks, Bo. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.